Well, howdy y'all. Welcome to Once Upon a Time in Texas. This is episode number 53. I'm your host, Michael Mitchell. Um, just got some kind of random thoughts, um, just kind of about the week. I guess everybody's kind of been seeing the stuff going on down on the border, putting the razor wire up, and um, I guess Governor Abbott's kind of thumbing his nose at the federal government, you know, which is, you know, however you feel, I guess that's fine. I mean, there's some people here that feel strongly both ways, and uh, I think it's time to maybe have a little deeper discussion about what's going on down there on the border, um, you know, between the powers that be, because there's definitely a problem, and uh, yeah, it makes me think of the, uh, the book, The Worst Hard Times, and it was about the Dust Bowl, that happened and you know back in the 30s and that basically there wasn't a whole lot happening and, and not a whole lot of movement out of Washington DC to kind of recover or help with that and it wasn't until a photographer was hired to go take uh, photos about you know the the folks that it was affecting and, and kind of to see that stuff that's one of the first times I think that photography was really used to kind of show a major uh, catastrophe. Uh, and then the second part was, uh, from what I remember, there was a pretty impassioned speech that was um, done out in the halls of Congress. Um, but it was specifically timed because they knew there was a huge dust storm coming out of you know, Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Kansas, uh, and it was blowing just perfectly north and east. And they timed the speech just right, and then they said if everybody would go to the windows, you can see the dust bowl coming our way, and this big dust storm, you know, falls upon Washington, D.C. So pretty good timing. Um but, you know, that was, that was a major problem that was uh, hurting Americans and uh, kind of a similar type deal going on with the border. And so it's, I think it's one of those things that's kind of out of sight, out of mind, um, because for a lot of folks that are outside of the, the border states, it doesn't seem to affect them that much. They don't see them. And to be honest, you know, here even in North Texas, we don't see a lot of the issues that are that are going on down along the border. Um, we don't see them, and, and we may not particularly feel them. And so it's, it's kind of one of those out-of-sight, out-of-mind things, and I think this is just bringing it to light. Um, do I think that, you know, the feds and, uh, you know, the government in Texas are necessarily going about it the right way? I don't know. Um... You know, I didn't necessarily start this podcast to share my uh, deep political opinions. <laughs> and so that's not what I'm here to do. But I am glad that there's something happening. I guess I'll say it that way. I'm glad that there's something happening. I'm glad that there's a little more being brought to light that'll maybe force some hands to actually get some stuff done and uh, to get things done right and in an appropriate time frame. I'll say it that way. I think that's fair. I think that's pretty much a kind of a, a 
Switzerland <laughs> answer one way or the other. I do have some pretty strong feelings about it. Um, really uh, kind of on both sides of the aisle. So I'm very much, uh, you know, we don't need to close the border 100%. But I'm also very much, you know, well, and, you know, close the border and say, you know, nobody's getting into this country because we are a country of immigrants. Um, you know, but on the other hand, I also see that we have laws and things set in place to come into our country legally, um, you know, and those really need to be followed. But I also agree that that is a pretty long and arduous and uh, expensive process. So I kind of try to look at things from the whole picture and think, you know what, there's got to be some common ground that we can do to not only continue to let um, immigrants into our country, um, but also to bring them in and welcome them to our ranks, uh, if you will, the right way, but also make that process a little more expeditious. My main concern is, um, and I don't know how to put this nicely, but you know, if, if you're a butthole in another country and you're just not a good person in another country, chances are you're not going to come to America and, and reform and become a good citizen. So, I mean, if you're that person in another country, I don't know that I really want you here either. But also realize that the vast majority of people that are coming across just want a better life. So, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know how you guys feel about it and, uh, and don't want to get into a deep discussion. But again, I'll just reiterate I'm glad that there are some things happening that are bringing everything to light and that maybe we'll finally get some some movement on what's going on um, with that crisis and, you know, make some good positive changes for the good of everyone. That's what I'm hoping for. So there you go. That's just my current, you know, kind of random stuff, I guess. So, uh... Let's jump into this week's this week's podcast. So just about every state has tornadoes and earthquakes. And I, I did look that up and almost, and that's true, almost every state in the Union has had tornadoes and earthquakes. So as for Texas, we've had some real doozies for tornadoes. I think everybody knows that. And surprisingly, we've had a few fairly strong earthquakes. Um, but volcanoes, I don't know. Um, that one kind of took me for a loop a little bit, but yep. We're going to talk about some of the strongest tornadoes, earthquakes, and, uh, we do have some volcanoes right here in Texas. So let's talk about, uh, as some folks would say, naders, quakes, and canos. <laughs> so... Before we take a look at some of these big uh, meteorological, meteorological, gosh sakes, I was going to put that word in there so I sounded smart and then I screwed it up. <laughs> meteorological events. Um, before we get into those, I'd like to thank our sponsors, of course, me and Victory Home Loans. I know there are tons of people out there moving, especially here in Texas and Oklahoma. Um, however, me and Victory Home Loans at the moment do cover 15 states. So if you know anybody that's moving, man, send them my way. 
TheMichaelMitchell.com, T-H-E, MichaelMitchell.com. If they are moving to or in a state that I don't cover, I'm actually getting a, a pretty large group of friends in the broker channel. And, uh, yeah, I can hook them up. If it is a state I cover, I'd love to help them out. So I love helping people win by getting into those dream homes and mark that uh, bucket list item of owning a home off of their bucket list. I love that. So why not work with somebody like me who's at least entertaining and works pretty hard to make that process faster, cheaper, and easier. So, you know, I'll get you hooked up. Again, if you know someone that's moving primarily here in Texas or Oklahoma, but really anywhere in the United States, send them my way. Send them over to themichaelmitchell.com, T-H-E, michaelmitchell.com. Let me help them out. Remember, when you work with me and Victory Home Loans, we don't sell... Oh, man, I messed that up. <laughs> my tagline, I messed it up. We sell dreams, not mortgages. Here, let me do that a little better. Let me do my, <clears throat> my radio voice. Here we go. When you work with me and Victory Home Loans, remember we sell dreams, not mortgages. <laughs> That's tough to do, and thank heavens I've got a little bit of a cold this week. Um, got the snot going, and I get my voice down that low. <laughs> All right, well, as you can tell, I like having a little bit of fun with this podcast, and uh, always got some stupid comments and commentary to make, and... Uh, I'm sure this time will be no different. So where did this week's idea come from? Well, last week's idea took us to uh, Texas Monthly, uh, and that's where I was looking. And while scrolling through some of that material looking at the Bum Steer Awards, I saw a brief article that said something about the Texas volcano. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I was like, hmm. Don't really have time to go down that rabbit hole right at the moment. But you know what? I'll put that on my list. And uh, I couldn't really get it out of my mind. I thought, you know, I really kind of want to go check this out. Um, but doing like a lone volcano is kind of boring because, I mean, a volcano is a volcano is a volcano for the most part. Unless it's in Iceland and then everybody's really interested. But... Uh, I thought, you know what, we'll add on some other things. And, you know, so I did. I went down that rabbit hole on this volcano, and now here we are. So I added on some of the strongest tornadoes and uh, earthquakes, because that's something we don't talk about a lot here in Texas. And then we're going to wrap up with our volcano. So let's do a little bit of this interesting stuff. So let's hit all of the deadliest tornadoes here in Texas. And I'm going to start off with a little bit of, sto of a story, as I do sometimes. So I remember, I'm, I'm thinking this was 1997. I'm out at Philmont Scout Ranch, um, working for the summer. And, uh, you know, I was 18-ish years old, I guess. And uh, a good friend of mine, Devra... And uh, Dever, if you listen to the podcast, here's a shout out to you. I'm probably going to text you later and say, hey, you might want to listen to this podcast. But I'm pretty sure it was Devra, but I was, I was talking to her. Well, I know it was Devra. And we were chatting one evening um, on the porch of the cabin where a lot of folks stayed. 
And we got on the topic of tornadoes. And, you know, she had mentioned just how scary they must be. I really hadn't thought much about it. As, you know, tornadoes were always kind of something that I'd had in my life, you know. Um, And I guess I was just kind of used to it. Because, you know, growing up, we were always taught about tornado shelters. And, you know, if there was a tornado and we were in school, we'd go to the hallway. And the way that we saved ourselves was by putting a, a book over our head, kind of in a teepee, because that would save us all. <laughs> and so, um, but I also remember as a kid being really upset my kindergarten year. Um, right before we were supposed to go back to school, a tornado hits Manford, Oklahoma. We were living in Manford while my dad was going to medical school in Tulsa. And I can kind of remember the storm, and I remember hearing the tornado sirens blow, um, we were out at our, uh, we lived in a nice single wide trailer house, um, that my grandparents had purchased for us to live in while dad was going to med school. And, uh, I remember hearing that it damaged the school. And so here's the deal. So why was I upset? So now that I was a big boy and I was ready for school, I had to start kindergarten in the Methodist church, or at least I think the Methodist church, um, where a bunch of us had gone to pre-K. And so I was upset. We were ready to go to school, and now we couldn't. We had to do school in church, which is what we'd been doing. So, yeah, I kind of remember that being upset. And, you know, another cool thing, years later with that, um, I come down, you know, we moved down here to Texas, and I'd done my stuff working for the Boy Scouts, and I'd moved back here to Wichita Falls, working for the Scouts, and a guy named Charlie Harper was in my Lions Club, and he got up and did a presentation about tornadoes and storm damage. And he had been researching them a little bit because he was an architect, and he was trying to find maybe some better ways to construct houses and buildings to make damage a little less sustainable. Or, I'm sorry, to make damage a little less of an issue, not sustainable. And then he talks about the first major tornado that he had gone to to look at schools was in Manford, Oklahoma. Way back in 1984, I guess what it was. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was there. Were you the guy that came in and talked to us about, you know, where to go hide? And he was like, I was. I did presentations at all the schools. And so, you know, here it was, whatever, almost 30 years later at that point, and uh, and we crossed paths again several hundred miles away. So that was kind of cool. So I remember watching tornadoes several times when I lived in my younger life up in northeastern Oklahoma. I'd seen them here in Wichita Falls. And when I lived out in San Angelo, I also watched them uh, several times out kind of on the flats of West Texas when I lived in San Angelo, but uh, I would drive to Fort Stockton quite a bit and these storms would blow up. And I, I remember several times seeing tornadoes. Um, one time, a fairly small one was coming and I just pulled over on the side of the road and I watched it cross the road in front of me. And uh, it just went on, you know, through the grasslands out there and kind of did its thing. So not particularly scary. I felt pretty safe. But again, it was something that I'd always been around. 
So tornadoes have always kind of uh, fascinated me. And, you know, I've just realized pretty early on that you really had to be in the right place at the right time or or wrong place at the wrong time, uh, depending on how you think of it, to be killed by a tornado or really suffer damage at your home. I mean, literally, it can destroy one house and then the house next door is maybe only slightly damaged if damaged at all. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, anyway, I told Devra back to this story that I was much more terrified of earthquakes and being as how she was in California, I asked her, I said, how do you guys deal with them? Like, you know, at least with tornadoes, we've got kind of an early warning system and, you know, usually have some sort of heads up and you can always go hide underground, uh, in a storm cellar or something. And she shrugged it off, you know, with earthquakes that that's ah, not really a big deal. They just kind of happen. Everybody deals with them and then life moves on. Um, and then I guess we kind of agreed that it was kind of the same thing for both of us. You know, I grew up with tornadoes and, you know, she grew up with earthquakes and, uh, yeah, we just kind of thought, you know, that's just kind of something that we, uh, grew up with. So it wasn't a big deal. And then of course, you know, we moved on to other conversations as we do and, so anyway, that was just kind of a fun, uh, a fun story, remembering, you know, having a conversation with somebody else from a different part of the country. And, uh, and Deborah's a teacher out in California now, doing a great job, has a couple of beautiful kids, beautiful family. And uh, she sti- still deals with earthquakes, and I still deal with tornadoes. So speaking of tornadoes, let's talk about the five deadliest tornadoes here in Texas. I would like to point out that a lot of these happened... Um, before there was really a lot of uh, early warning. So the Waco tornado, this is number one. This is the deadliest tornado in Texas history. Struck shortly after 4 p.m. on the day after Mother's Day, May 11th, 1953. It touched down just north of the town of uh, Lorena, L-O-R-E-N-A, and began moving north northeast, as most tornadoes do, towards Waco. On a radar screen at Texas A&M University, the tornadic storm developed a hook-shaped echo. Nearly a third of a mile wide, this massive F3 tornado crossed Waco on a path that ran almost directly south to north. Um, It killed 114 people and injured 597. It destroyed around 600 homes and other buildings and damaged over 1,000. And, uh, and damaged over 2,000 vehicles. And some of the survivors had to actually wait for up to 14 hours to be rescued. Kind of something that they were just wholly unprepared for. So the next one is the Goliad tornado. And that happened May 18, 1902. It was the second deadliest tornado in Texas history. And, uh, oops, had a pop-up come up. Um, yeah, second deadliest tornado in Texas history. And it also killed 114 people, so same as Waco. But it's rated number two since uh, it only had about 250 injuries, so it injured less people. But it still, kill, it still killed the same amount of people. So, unfortunate. Sorry, I got a little... I had a pop-up that came up, and I was like, what? So it kind of threw me off. 
So back to the Goliad tornado. Um, it's believed to have touched down just before 4 p.m. near uh, Berclair, about 15 miles southwest of Goliad, and moved on a track towards the northeast. It was uh, about an eighth of a mile wide, and it was classified as an F4 tornado and crossed the San Antonio River southwest of Goliad and moved into town. Most of the deaths occurred in the west part of Goliad, um, where just hundreds of buildings were um, destroyed. Now, I forgot to put the date on this other one. So, the first one was in 1953, the Waco tornado. The Goliad tornado was in 1902. Next is the Rock Springs tornado. And so, I had to Google it right quick. Uh, this happened on April 12th. 1927. It is the third deadliest tornado in Texas history. Like the first and second, it occurred well south of what is generally considered Tornado Alley. Uh, and interestingly enough, everybody thinks Tornado Alley is pretty much Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. Um, it's actually east of here a little more. I mean, you're talking Arkansas, Missouri, Illinois, you know, area all those. And so there's a lot more that happened there, but uh, they just seem to be a lot more extreme here. So the Rock Springs tornado was an F5 tornado. It's touched down three miles to the northwest of Rock Springs in, Edgeward, in Edwards County. So this is down um, south. It was actually in my old district when I worked for the Boy Scouts, south of San Angelo. And it moved towards the southeast, which is kind of rare. Tornadoes normally don't move northeast to southeast uh, or generally in a southerly direction they generally tend to move north or northeast so apparently kind of an odd tornado and uh, it was nearly a mile wide as it crossed rock springs it destroyed 235 of the 247 buildings in town so pretty much wiped out rock springs it killed 74 people and injured 205 so almost a full third of the population was either killed or injured. And then pretty much, like I said, it cleared Rock Springs off the map. It continued um, in a southeastward direction at least 35 miles and perhaps as far as 65 miles. So that's, that's pretty much a very odd tornado and a big deal. Number four is the Glacier Higgins Woodward Tornado. This happened April 9th, 1947. So take note that most of these, again, were well before the early warning systems, the, the air raid sirens that were put in. Um, radar really wasn't around and or in heavy use until after World War II. And so, you know, not a whole lot of opportunities to warn people early. So this particular tornado was the fourth deadliest tornado in Texas history. Uh, it also moved through western Oklahoma and dissipated near St. Leo, Kansas. Uh, it was part of a family of deadly twisters. Um, this one touched down five miles northwest of Pampa, way up in the panhandle of Texas, and crossed just northwest of Canadian, nearly parallel to U.S. 60. Its funnel was reported at times to be between one and two miles wide, just before crossing into Oklahoma. It destroyed the town of Glacier and most of the town of Higgins. It killed 17 and injured 40 in Glacier and then 
Another 51 people were killed and 232 injured in Higgins. The final totals across all three states were 181 killed, 970 injured. So if all that had happened in Texas, that would have been actually the largest uh, or the worst or deadliest tornado in Texas. But we're lumping in all three states, which if you look at the panhandle of Texas, Oklahoma, and then Kansas, they're all right there pretty close. And so it didn't travel super, super far. I mean, it still traveled a ways, but a bad deal. And then number five. Oh, yes, this is the one we around here in Wichita Falls called Terrible Tuesday. This is the Wichita Falls tornado, which was on April 10th, 1979. My wife was born just a year later. This is one of the most infamous tornadoes in Texas. Um, I was pretty sure it was an F5. The stuff I read on here said it was an F4. Uh, regardless, it touched down about three miles northeast of Holiday, Texas, um, which is a little town that's uh, southwest of Wichita Falls here. It damaged homes and business, and then it crossed into Wichita Falls and severely damaged Memorial Stadium, uh, McNeil Middle School, where my wife works, Ryder High School, where uh, my two daughters go to school, and then, of course, my son goes to school at McNeil, um, where my wife works. And then it entered into the residential part of the city. So it also damaged the Sykes Center Mall, big shopping center. And then it just says numerous vehicles. Guys, I've seen pictures. Yeah, it damaged more than numerous. It did damage a lot. Then it proceeded across uh, Highway 287, where it destroyed a bunch more vehicles. At times, it was a mile and a half wide. And it continued northeast from Wichita Falls, past the Red River, and into Oklahoma, where it dissipated north of Warica, Oklahoma, which is, I think, 30 or 35 miles from here. I don't know. I drive up there all the time on a regular basis, but I don't remember the exact mileage. In total, it killed 42 people in Wichita Falls. 25 of those deaths were vehicle-related. And it caused over 1,700 injuries and destroyed over 3,000 homes and left about 20,000 people homeless. So it was a big deal. However, more people would have died had it not been for the early warning system, which they used. And so a lot of people were able to get to shelter. But uh, yeah, it was pretty bad, mostly because it hit a pretty you know heavily populated area. So there you go. There's naders. Let's jump on over to earthquakes. Now, let's be honest. When it comes to earthquakes, Texas is probably not the state that jumps into your mind. Uh, I was a little surprised to find out that there have been more than 3,100 recorded earthquakes in the state since we started recording them in 1900, with about 70 being a magnitude 4 or greater, and about 6 having been a magnitude 5 or greater. So what is the uh, strongest earthquake to hit Texas? Well, it struck around 5.40 a.m. August 16, 1931. It was a magnitude 5.8 earthquake and was centered about seven and a half miles southwest of Valentine, Texas, which is a small community in Presidio County between El Paso and Big Bend. Here's how the USGS described the earthquake in its impact summary. And it says, I quote, 
The most severe damage was reported in Valentine, where all buildings except wood frame houses were damaged severely and all brick chimneys toppled or were damaged. The schoolhouse, which consisted of one section of concrete blocks and another section of bricks, was damaged so badly that it had to be rebuilt. Small cracks formed in the schoolhouse yard. Some walls collapsed in adobe buildings and ceilings and partitions were damaged in wood frame structures. Some concrete and brick walls were cracked severely. One low wall, reinforced with concrete, was broken and thrown down. Tombstones in a local cemetery were rotated. Damage to property was reported from widely scattered points in Brewster, Jeff Davis, Culberson, and Presidio counties, end quote. So what's interesting is that earthquakes have been recorded in almost every part of the state, but there are clusters where they're more common, particularly out in West Texas. Um, the, the region out in West Texas does have the most fault zones in the state, but is also known for fracking. So a process which liquid is injected into the ground to force oil and gas to the surface. And so there's been some debate whether the fracking is causing the issues or not. I don't know. But the largest clusters are there in West Texas near Midland and Odessa, um, which is where a big majority of fracking is going on. And then uh, southwest, but not quite, out to El Paso. There's a pretty good cluster that runs east-west um, in the Panhandle, north of Amarillo, kind of goes from uh, the border with Oklahoma to the border of New Mexico out there. And uh, then the other small cluster is between San Antonio and Corpus Christi. So it was real interesting. So now the question begging to be answered is, are the earthquakes becoming more frequent and is it due to fracking or human activity? And the answer is it sure kind of appears so. Um, data from the USGS shows a 79% increase of all types of earthquakes in Texas. Um, I'm sorry, with all earthquakes in Texas with a magnitude of 2.5 or greater have occurred, um, that 79% increase has occurred just since the start of 2020. It's a huge spike, y'all. It's interesting. And so from the research I found, it shows that the 70 plus percent increase mark in the increase of earthquakes holds true in every category from small ones, um, you know, to two and a half plus to three plus to four plus. So every category has increased since 2020 by 70 percent or more. So I would like to say, though, that uh, KXAN, um, a TV station, did a great news story on this and had really some really good graphics and maps and data um, that kind of goes along with this. So go check them out. The way I found them is I Googled biggest Texas earthquake and it came up as the very first story. So now let's jump into the next one. What about volcanoes? Well, I found this on Wikipedia and it's a little dry, but I'm going to read it out to you anyway because I do think it's interesting. Pilot Knob is one of around 75 late Cretaceous period volcanoes scattered around central Texas from Waco to Austin, San Antonio, and Del Rio. All of these volcanoes have been extinct for millions of years. 
So there we go. There's the good news. We have naders and earthquakes. Volcanoes? Yeah, we have them, but they're extinct. The Pilot Knob Volcanic Complex consists of four small rounded hills, including Pilot Knob proper, forming the volcano's core in an area two miles in diameter. The hills are composed of trap rock, which is an erosion-resistant, fine-grained, mafic volcanic rock. The complex rises above a circular lowland drained by Cottonmouth Creek and is underlain chiefly by volcanic ash and other pyroclastic debris. Several smaller bodies of trap rock occur in the volcanic ash. A topographic rim surrounding the Cottonmouth Creek lowland to the north is formed by sedimentary rock, mainly lithified breach sediments composed of shell fragments and reworked volcanic ash that accumulated in the shallow waters around the volcano. Now, I just said shallow waters. Yeah, a huge part of Texas was underwater at one time. So let me go into it. This will, I'm just reading it straight from kind of the report that was put into Wikipedia. I hope you guys find it interesting. You know, I was a science teacher for a while, so I'm a little bit of a science nerd. So I'm just going to read this out as it's written. And you guys can take it or leave it. So I'm going to go through this pretty quick. In the late Cretaceous time, Central Texas was part of a vast marine shelf on which carbonate rocks were deposited with the entire area gradually subsiding as sediments were laid down. The volcano formed with magma worked or when magma worked its way to the surface and encountered water-laden unconsolidated sediments with the existing water rapidly vaporizing in a steam resulting in an enormous explosion that formed an explosion crater. Explosive eruptions continued at Pilot Point as new magma encountered more water in the volcanic ash. Gradually, an ash cone was built up over the explosion crater. Eruptions of ash continued until the mound grew above the sea level of shallow sea. Ash beds now altered to clay occurred interbedded with limestone and marl of the Austin group around Pilot Point. These ash beds provide evidence of subaureal eruptions at Pilot Knob. The Pilot Knob ash cone eventually built an unstable slope on the sea bottom, resulting in mud flows of ash and carbonate mud, which tore up the underlying carbonate mud in places and injected itself into the carbonate mud at other places. The subaureal pilot knob ash cone allowed the intrusion of magma into the mound without contact with seawater, resulting in quieter lava eruptions. Isn't that nice? Such magma cooled and solidified to form the core and satellite areas of trap rock. Some of the trap rock bodies are the erosional remnants of lava flows due to their apparent dip away from the central core area. Cooling joints exposed on a hill about 1,500 feet west of Pilot Knob suggest a dip of that trap rock body towards the center of the core area, possibly indicating that it is the erosional remnant of a cone sheet ejected outwards from a central discordant intrusive body of magma. Isn't this fascinating, y'all? <laughs> I'm not going to read some of the other crap. Basically, long story short, volcano starts coming up under the sea and it builds up and then it eventually kind of blows up. 
To go on further, it says, As volcanic activity diminished, beaches developed around the volcano. One such beach deposit, now lithified and resistant to erosion, extends several miles to the north of the volcano. It appears along Onion Creek, where it is responsible for both upper and lower McKinney Falls. The entire shelf continued to subside after volcanic activity ceased, and muds of the Taylor Group gradually covered the entire volcano. During the tertiary area, I'm sorry, the tertiary era, the Central Texas area was uplifted, exposing the volcano as younger sediment sedimentary rocks were eroded from the Cretaceous volcanic rocks. Today, the terrain at Pilot Knob reflects the relatively resistance sorry, the relative resistance to erosion of the different rock types that appear around the volcanic complex. Now, I'm sure some of y'all are thinking, Mike, what does all this mean? Well, what this means is if you're a bit of a rock hound or a little bit of a science nerd, Pilot Knob's probably a cool place to go check out. It's got different types of rock. Sedimentary versus metamorphic versus igneous. So, there you go. Go check out Pilot Knob and uh, and our volcano. <laughs> go check them out. Um, I hope you guys are still enjoying the podcast after a year. This is episode number 53. So, uh, yeah. Go check them out. So what do y'all think? Let me know what other weird and off-the-wall Texas history you'd like to hear about. want to thank our sponsors again, me and Victory Home Loans. If you know somebody moving pretty much in the United States at this point, Send them my way, themichaelmitchell.com, T-H-E, michaelmitchell.com. And remember, we sell dreams, not mortgages. Isn't that nice? Thank you all for tuning in to Once Upon a Time in Texas. As always, remember, the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Y'all have a great week.